0: Roweda Abdelaziz reports on immigration and Islamophobia for the Huffington Post, and she says her beat, combined with the fact that she herself is a Muslim, it's meant she and her sources are sometimes asking themselves this question, am I being
1: watched? The tension is always there, and I think oftentimes it presents itself as this dark, satirical joke. You know, I've been in circles with friends or on the phone with friends where, you know, perhaps a joke has been made or we we said something uh, in passing. And then all of a sudden the joke is, oh, well, you know, to the agent that's listening, I'm obviously just joking, right? This anxiety did not come out of nowhere.
0: For decades, American Muslims have been under surveillance by the federal government, the NYPD embedded informants in mosques after 9-11, Roweda's own mosque in New Jersey turned out to have an informant in the congregation. For a long time, Roweda says, a lot of Muslims felt two things at once, that it was absurd to think the government would be monitoring them, but also that they had no proof that they
1: weren't under surveillance. All of a sudden, you grow up thinking that even though you're not the enemy, you're treated like one.
0: Hmm. When... Muslim communities have pushed for more
1: information. To sort of dispel some of this paranoia, what happens? Many of these programs remain secret to this day. And anytime there were challenges, whether through lawsuits by Muslim Americans or civil rights groups, the FBI and the government as a whole has been able to push back uh, and say, well, we can't reveal too much because it would risk national security. There is this generation of Muslims who've heard of this big, scary thought that someone was consistently listening into our conversations, tapping into our phones, and we had informants perhaps in our mosque. But it was more of a gut fear than it was perhaps anything tangible. And it wasn't until several years later when we heard about what was happening in California where a lot of Muslim Americans, including folks in my community, started thinking, well, this actually can be a lived reality. This can be real. This is not some fear that we've chalked up in our heads. What happened in California
0: is a sprawling investigation in which the FBI sent an informant to 10 mosques under the auspices of learning more about the faith. He converted, and then he tried to goad his new friends into plotting violence with him. No one at the mosque wanted anything to do with his radical talk. In the end, the only person who was convicted of anything was the informant himself, which is why some of the people who were targeted in this operation sued. The FBI looked us in the eyes and assured us unequivocally that they were not spying on us. And we trusted them. But they lied. And our sacred community was shaken to its core. I hope and I pray that the Supreme Court... Last week, that lawsuit made it all the way to the Supreme Court. I wonder a little bit if, for Muslims, this lawsuit is seen a little bit as a proof of concept. Like, this is pretty much as bad as FBI surveillance could be. And I wonder if the feeling is, you know, if we can't seek some kind of damages in this case, can we as a Muslim community seek damages for any of these cases. For Muslim
1: Americans, it is a proof of concept. It is putting, you know, pen to paper and letting folks know that this isn't just a paranoia, that this isn't something that they've just made up. Also, they hope that by cementing this experience that a wrong can be documented and then eventually that wrong can be righted. Today on the show, can the government
0: continue to claim that national security trumps the civil rights of Muslim Americans. The Supreme Court is set to decide. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person, anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The plaintiffs in this case are three men named Yasser Faziga, Ali Malik and Yasser Abdelrahim. Fazaga was an imam at the Orange County Islamic Foundation in Southern California. Malik and Abdelrahim were congregants nearby. But before I tell you about their complaint, I think it's helpful to have a little context. Back in 2006, when this story begins, Muslims in Orange County were worried that the federal government was spying on them. And they were worried enough that they actually had a town hall with the head of the FBI for Los Angeles, he reassured them they were not being surveilled. Filmmaker Sam Black unearthed a recording of this moment. You can hear the crowd laughing in disbelief when the FBI official denies that they're keeping watch on the community. If, if, if we're going to come to mosque to come to service, we will. We will tell you we're coming to service. Without anybody
2: knowing. But
0: what I'm saying, FBI. We will tell you we're coming for the very reason we don't want you to think you're being monitored. And just a few months after this promise, the FBI placed an undercover informant in that very same mosque and others nearby. The goal was to spy
1: on congregants. The informant's name was Craig Monte. Craig Monte himself started working for the FBI after 1986, where he was caught in a drug investigation, and the FBI gave him two options become an informant for us or go to prison. So he chose to become an informant and started to do that for more than two decades. And it wasn't until 2006 where agents with the FBI, specifically in the counterterrorism unit, told him about his new assignment where he would go to Southern California and pose as a convert named Furu El-Aziz. He was supposedly of Syrian and French descent and wanted to convert to Islam. And so that's exactly what he did on a Friday during Friday prayers, one of the busiest days of the week for Muslims, converted to Islam in friends of tons of congregants and started making himself well known. He met with various members of the Muslim community, including all three plaintiffs in one way or another. The operation was called Operation Flex uh, because Craig Monte was a bodybuilder for a really long time and loved working out. I think he said he had like 21 inch biceps, which is crazy. That's insane to even imagine. But all the plaintiffs who I've spoken with have said one of the first things, you know, that caught their attention was that how physically big this guy was and how much he loved working out. And that was the way that he gained trust, especially of younger Muslim men. They'd be like, let's go to the gym together. Let's chat. Let's hang out. And so that's what they did for several months, all while he was secretly recording tons of conversations. So you talked about how Craig Monte
0: entered this mosque, became Muslim, and then started talking to people at the gym. He even talked to the imam, too. And my understanding is he even put a recording device in the imam's office, and he's a therapist.
1: That's correct. And so as Craig Monte started to become more comfortable with members of the Muslim community, particularly these three plaintiffs. They met up at the gym, they met up at the mosque, they met up at the community centers and at coffee shops, while Craig was carrying a key fob that essentially was recording hours and hours of conversations that he's had with all of these individuals. And when the red flag started coming is when Monte started asking some questions that the, you know, all of the plaintiffs deemed to be problematic, he started asking about violence in particular. He started asking about which Imams in the SoCal community supported violence. And every time either Ali Malik or the Imam or Yasir Abdurrahim tried to essentially course correct and tell him that this was incorrect, this was not of the faith, Craig just became more and more bold and it terrified every single one of them.
0: Right. They talk about because he was so big, he actually kind of scared them. And one of the plaintiffs in this case actually confronted him and basically said, you've got to stop talking about jihad in this way. Like, it's not what Islam's about. And I need to know where you're learning it so that
1: I can, you know, sort of push back against whatever it is you're talking about here. Yeah. When I was speaking to Ali Malik uh, not too long ago, he mentioned at first he thought, perhaps he is reading this information online. He's getting misinformation online because the internet can be a terrible place for uh, when we're looking for information about Islam, uh, just because of the Islamophobia. Uh, that is present he thought perhaps he was being fed information that was incorrect so he tried to ask him where he was getting this information and didn't want him to be overwhelmed right anyone who enters a new faith community it's very easy to be overwhelmed and so all of these plaintiffs had just such good intentions and really did not think ill of this man because they thought, well, this is a new member of the community. This is someone who we want to befriend. This is someone who is probably super innocent and just doesn't know where he's getting his information from. So let us all kind of team up together and give him the correct information. And so I think all of that just adds to the shock and the violation and the betrayal that they all felt, you know, having this person welcomed into their home, meeting their family, trying to, you know, help him navigate this new life he was on, to only to find out that none of that was genuine. And in fact, he was trying to entrap them. How was
0: Craig Monte's surveillance
1: ultimately uncovered? After Craig started asking uh, particularly problematic questions about violence. Soon the Muslim community started talking to one another, friends of friends started finding out that they he wasn't the only one that they were asking. And so they the Muslim community ended up going to the local leadership uh, at the mosque. And then the mosque called the FBI themselves, warning them about Craig and his rhetoric, because again, the FBI had a working relationship with the Muslim community, was actively going to the mosques and engaging with Muslims. And so eventually when they started reporting uh, Craig Monte to the FBI and found that the federal government had a very lukewarm response, they didn't jump at the opportunity, they didn't press for further information. This is when suspicion started to really arise and then soon Craig Monte himself came out publicly and said that he was a paid informant working for the federal government. How did they respond when they learned that? Because that's like a whole other twist that we've
0: reported this person but actually this person worked for the FBI. So then what does that mean that he was
1: speaking about you know violence so freely? The experience hit these young men hard. You know, one of the plaintiffs told me that he temporarily stopped going to the mosque because he was so fearful and because of the trauma. Uh, Others described to me a sense of paranoia. You know, Ali Malik described it as like being in a marriage and the whole time your spouse was cheating, except that it made it more traumatic for him because he wasn't cheating on just him, but on his entire community. So the sense of looking over your shoulders when you're walking, when you're talking to someone, you know, another Muslim that you just met, you don't know if that person is uh, genuine in their interaction or someone who's also paid by the federal government. Um, for Ali Malik, it changed the course of his career. He was someone who wanted to go into foreign service work and now works in medical sales. For Yasser yes, Rahim he felt traumatized and didn't know who to trust anymore and so it hit them on an individual level Um, on a communal level the imam also talked to me that there was a lot of confusion but also a lot of anger from the muslim community because like i mentioned this place that was such an intimate location for so many a second home for for so many muslim americans that intimacy was violated and cemented a belief that some people were second class citizens and that Muslim Americans were never going to be treated as equal in the eyes of the law. And so it went very quickly from confusion and disappointment to being quite angry. There was a peace that was taken away from the community as the Imam told me. Has the FBI ever acknowledged how badly this operation went? We haven't heard much from them other than that this was in part of the counter-terrorism unit and that there were leads that they needed to follow. But they continued to maintain that they weren't singling any community member out, that they weren't uh, targeting these Muslim Americans for their just religious beliefs, and that they were doing their jobs. Craig Monte never publicly uncovered any kind of
0: terrorist activity during this stint as an informer. But he did send hours and hours of covert recordings back to his FBI handlers, Recordings, the plaintiffs say, they want destroyed. Roweda says, even today, we have very little idea how common surveillance operations like this one are. We just
1: know a slew of national security programs that came immediately after 9-11 and the war on terror that disproportionately targeted Muslims in some way or another. And that came in the forms of informants, that came in a form of a national registry, that came in the form of surveillance. And so we are only starting to scratch the surface of how widespread a lot of these programs were and how they've impacted Muslim Americans. So when did the community decide to file suit? Like, what did they want out of a lawsuit? The community first filed the suit, specifically the three plaintiffs filed it in 2011. And they are hopeful that they want to seek some sort of accountability They want justice in the eyes of the law and their day in court to say that their lives have been impacted forever because of what had happened to them. And they want to see justice in terms of the federal government not just acknowledging what they did, but also acknowledging that what they did violated their religious freedoms and violated the Constitution.
0: When we come back, how this legal fight has narrowed on its way to the Supreme Court.
2: I decided to hold my government accountable for what it did to us.
0: 15 years later, I'm a grown man with children who wonder why their dad is suing their government. I tell them the truth, that while this happened before they were born, the impacts of this case will extend even beyond their generation.
1: This is the story of The One.
2: Price and coverage match limited by state law. The important thing to understand about
0: this Muslim surveillance case is that now that it's reached the Supreme Court, it's not actually a matter of deciding whether the FBI did anything wrong here, but whether the lawsuit can proceed at all. And that's because the FBI is invoking state secrets, a defense that shields the Bureau from revealing its operations and motivations as long as they can claim doing so would endanger national security. The contentious nature of state secrets is one reason this case has been in process for so long. When the suit was first filed, a federal district court judge accepted the government's argument and dismissed it. And then, in 2019, an appeals court reversed that decision and reinstated the plaintiff's claims against the FBI. That decision then got appealed by the Justice Department, and landed in front of the nine justices in Washington. So walk me through the arguments each side made when they finally got in front of the Supreme Court justices.
2: We will hear argument first this morning in case 2828, the Federal Bureau of Investigation versus Fasaga.
1: The government essentially argued that it couldn't defend itself uh, in this case without revealing state secrets, and doing so would be a risk to national security.
2: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The state secrets privilege is firmly grounded in the Constitution and the common law and is critical to safeguarding the national security.
1: The FBI also maintains that the case doesn't just doesn't have any merit, and that the government doesn't target anyone solely due to their ethnicity or their religious backgrounds. For the plaintiffs, they argued about the issue of freedom of religion. Privacy and unchecked government power. They mentioned that their lives were essentially damaged because of these surveillance programs, and that harm was already caused, and that their religious freedoms should triumph. Um, the state secrets privilege, because of the impact that it's had thus far. Was that look?
2: Even if they say they can't show it to everyone, they still need to destroy it, and that would make a difference. I mean, then our clients would at least still know that uh, the government, whatever records they got from them, because you know, Mr. Fazaga was leading his congregation in prayer, or Mr. Malik decided as a young man to embrace his faith they would at least know then that got burned because it wasn't right. It wasn't right to spy on them because you thought that they were dangerous just because they were embracing their faith.
0: It was interesting to me to just look at what the justices seemed to be saying. Like Samuel Alito basically worried that if a judge was put in this position of seeing national security information and, you know, keeping it from the public and making a ruling. He called it a star chamber. He's like, everything's going to happen, you know, in this secret environment, and then a ruling is going to come down. And that's not consistent with due process, basically. Like, the point of going to court is you air things out publicly. It just raises this question for me, which is, what's the mechanism for accountability
1: if it's not a lawsuit? And that's exactly what the plaintiffs are arguing, that if they are not going to seek justice through the eyes of the law, and not just the district courts or the local courts, but also in front of the Supreme Court, uh, they're concerned that they will never be able to seek justice or find accountability or the federal government will never be held accountable for their actions. If not now, then when? Is there any case from the
0: past that, either side is invoking to bolster their case? Like, is there anything we can look back on in the last few years that says like, okay, well, maybe we'll go this way or that way?
1: There's one particular case that the plaintiffs have mentioned that has them particularly hopeful. And that is the Tanzine v. Tanvir case. That was actually, uh, we heard a, a ruling in December 2020, where the Supreme Court ruled that three Muslim men who essentially sued the government, particularly the FBI, because they alleged that the FBI put them on the no-fly list in attempts to coerce them into becoming informants. And these men refused. And in this case, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor of saying that these Muslim men were entitled to seek damages from the federal law enforcement officers. Was the government claiming national security risk the same way they are here? Yes. So, the fact that the Supreme Court ruled in their favor quite recently um, has these plaintiffs particularly hopeful. And the Supreme Court is sympathetic to religious freedom
0: arguments. That's what they're hoping for. One of the fears of the FBI and the U.S. government in this case is that if there's a ruling that allows this case to move forward, if there's a ruling that says, okay, you know, we we accept the terms here, you can air this out in court, that it would open the door to lots of other cases. You know, the government would have to be batting down cases and maybe wouldn't be able to bat them down because of this Supreme Court ruling. And so all of a sudden, the government's business is just out there. Do you think about that at all? Like whether a ruling allowing this case to go forward would have downsides?
1: It's definitely a question for the lawyers. I think there are a lot of aspects to this that has to be juggled. There's of course valid national security concerns that you know the government should continue to uphold. I mean, when we're talking about the Muslim American population, These are not people who are separate from the general American population. So the Muslim Americans wanna be protected and live in, in relative peace and in a stable country, just like everyone else. And I think what the frustration here is, how far can they continue to use that defense where little to no information is ever revealed? And so the hope is that the Supreme Court will find that right balance between this court case and the future implications it'll have that not only continues to protect this country and protect everyone in it, Muslim Americans included, but also is done in a way that doesn't violate religious freedoms and it doesn't violate the constitution. So I think that's the bigger question at play here. And is there a way to do both? And I think critics often say, well, if you have nothing to hide, then it shouldn't be, surveillance shouldn't be an issue, right? So I often think about that comment. It's a school of thought that some people continue to hold that surveillance shouldn't be a problem if you have nothing to hide um, and the government is just doing its job. And so it gets me thinking, well, shouldn't that apply for the government agents as well? They have nothing to hide and no wrongdoing was done and they're still able to protect the country. Shouldn't they also be held accountable by the people?
0: Rueda, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Roweda Abdelaziz is a national reporter focused on immigration, Islamophobia, and social justice issues for HuffPost. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Alina Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, and Davis Land. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Shout out to reporter Sam Black and the team at This American Life for collecting the tape that you heard at the top of the show. If you want to dive deeper into this case, I really can't recommend their reporting enough. I'm Mary Harris. You can catch me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I'll tweet out a link to that This American Life episode today. So go find me online. Meanwhile, I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow.